Welcome, everyone, to today's podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development, with your host, Janice Palaganis, who is the Associate Professor of Health Professions Education and the Associate Director of the PhD Program in Health Professions Education, along with Peter Kahn, the Associate Provost for Academic Affairs at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Welcome to What's Your Delta, MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. You're here with Janice Palaganis and... The almost unmuted Peter Kong. <laughs> so I'm pretty excited about today's episode um, because our goal and our focus of this podcast is to look at faculty development and I am just so honored to be part of continuing professional development at uh, MGH IHP. And I just want to introduce our host, I should say co-host or co-interviewees that are joining us today in our discussion. We have uh, Dr. Sue Farrell, who's the director of CPD, and she really spearheaded the development of the office of CPD. And I just thought, Sue, from the very beginning, you kind of injected a focus of interprofessional development, which is what MGHIHP, you know, we we have a very huge focus and mission on interprofessional education, and you have injected that into academic and clinical faculty development in not just practice, but learning, team development, and leadership. You've also, I think, evidence of this is that we just received joint accreditation status Thanks to your leadership and thanks to Ginny's work and Betsy's work Bravo. too. It's a no, big deal. That was that was a huge team deal, and thank you for acknowledging that, Janice. And um, and I should say that uh, for our listeners who don't know what joint accreditation status is, it's providing continuing education credits or units to interprofessional. It does, you know, uh, it's not usually most CME for example, is around medical education units and CEs. Sometimes the boards of nursing have, you know, specific for nursing. Joint accreditation allows certification for all different professions and especially interprofessional education. So thanks really for doing that. It's a testament to that interprofessional approach that the learning activities take. So there's that ease on the administrative side. There's also the sort of seal of approval they're baking in those collaborative principles with every activity they offer. Yes, thanks for, thanks for mentioning it, Janice and Peter, and we are really thrilled and honored. So, I'd also like to introduce Betsy Cox. Betsy, every time I'm around you, I just feel so calm. It's so <laughs> wonderful. Um, and it just makes sense that you are also a certified executive coach. Betsy is our associate director for continuing professional development. And uh, you've spent about 20 years in international health uh, working with interprofessional teams for leadership development, education, system development, quality and patient safety. I feel like you've lived IPE, at least in the literature called serendipitous IPE. You've done a lot of that. And you also have recently joined CPD, and you are the course director for nursing, the nursing leadership program, which talks a lot about things that I'm passionate about, like resilience. So welcome, Betsy. Wonderful to have both of you here. I, I have to just quickly say I love working with both of these women because 
we'll be planning something and talking about something and pretty immediately we just get to the heart of whatever it is we're teaching and we have all these philosophical discussions around the heart of it you know we're not just looking at the check boxes and looking at you know things that people typically go to when they're new at developing courses but we go to the heart of whatever we're teaching and then start there and broaden out so wonderful to have both of you i'm sure this is going to be a wonderful podcast thank you plus we throw in a little bit of fun here and there too <laughs> I think fun, fun is allowed and even encouraged, particularly when you talk about resilience. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the type of education that the two of you are specializing in. It is not the traditional classroom-based semester-long education. And yet when COVID came around and disrupted all of our health professions curricula, you also were affected. You had a leading across professions conference planned for April. I wonder what those conversations were like when you were figuring out, okay, this is not going to look like we intended it would look like. How did you decide what to do next when the calendar went all topsy-turvy? Well, I can take one of those questions, um, Peter. I I love that topsy-turvy. I actually even said that to someone. I feel like Mary Poppins, everything is topsy-turvy right now. You know, we we had to, and, and Sue can speak probably more specifically for the April leading across professions, but we had launched launched in March a hybrid program for nurse leaders where they would be on campus, there'd be some remote, there'd be some coaching, and then they'd come back on campus. And we quickly realized that that was not going to be the case and that we had to really pivot. And so the conversations we were having was really around how do you meet people where they are? We could not even begin to imagine what their day-to-day experience was. And these are nurse leaders through um, multiple settings in uh, on the care continuum, whether it's acute care, long-term care, in the community, in academic settings. And we had to pause and try to say, where can we meet them where they are? And so we had some really creative conversations in our office of dialing up the support, removing barriers to get to the content, having communities of learning, doing case studies right then and there about leading in a pandemic. So that was really our ability to try to be creative with each other, to have a little empathy, if you will, of what and perspective taking to say, what could it be like for them? We can't walk in their shoes, but can we try to find ways to meet them where we are? And uh, and those were some uh, some powerful conversations in, uh, in, in our office. So it was a little bit about the nursing leadership program, but then we certainly, Sue, were doing the same thing with leading across professions with a, with a broader audience. And, and of course, we started with some of those free webinars that uh, you might want to uh, kind of tell the audience a little about because that was also a lot of fun and a, a little scary. Sure. I I remember, Peter, the day I was sitting in my office, which was the last day that I was sitting in my office in March before everything changed and um, making the difficult decision to cancel this year's Leading Across Professions course that had been scheduled to run in our new conference facility. And with some perspective over the ensuing weeks in March, as Betsy referred to, it seemed as though this is a time in our lives when the topics for this year's uh, Leading Across Professions program 
were probably more important than ever. Uh, Our themes were around trust and trust building on teams in order to promote relational trust that supports resilience of teams under times of stress. And we need those concepts and behaviors probably more than ever right now in order to support people in the work that we're doing. And so it it took Janice's uh, description of how we all came together to think about how this is still really important and we can create an opportunity for people to think about these concepts and think about ways to keep their own teams healthy and trusting of each other in order to mitigate divisive conflict and help themselves to be more successful. And so we promptly decided that we shouldn't just cancel and give up. We should turn this into a virtual experience that's happening uh, in October. How prescient. So you're saying that you had picked the topics of trust and trust building before this pandemic came on the scene. Well, I don't I don't think we had any any anticipation in mind. It really came from the education and faculty development that we've done for interprofessional teams over the course of the last several years. And I think that the interprofessional competencies are very important in order to guide the behaviors of different members of teams. But you know, digging into the literature, it really felt as though before you can make those behaviors exemplary of how the team members really are successful together, they need to be able to have the foundation of trust for those behaviors to be most effective. And so we had already hit on the idea that trust building activities and the skills that you can embody within your team members could probably make interprofessional learning and clinical functioning even more successful than it is already. So we certainly didn't anticipate that our world would change like this, but we still felt that trust and mitigating divisive conflict and thinking about conflict as a normal and expected characteristic of dynamic interactions of really smart people and something that we can used to improve our skills was going to be an important theme this year. And I agree with you. I think it's probably more important just because now we're doing this all virtually and trying to come together. Let me ask as a clarifying point, because with Betsy, we were talking about resilience, and now you're bringing up the concept of trust. I know in the simulation and other worlds, we talk about psychological safety. I wonder if you could describe the connection between those terms, and are they all facets of the same concept? Betsy, if I start, can you um, can I toss the ball to you? <laughs> Hopefully, I'll catch it, but I'm, I'm okay. willing. To so, as a basis for this connection, Peter, when we were reading a lot about the literature as it pertains to trust, in general, there are two models for trust building, and one is sort of a transactional or sort of calculated way of building trust by parsing out who will do what task and then sort of having a contractual or transactional relationship that everyone will do their part in order to move forward. And that contrasts with relational trust in which people really have to honestly 
learn to know each other as persons outside of their title or the description of the work that they do so that by developing a relational way to understand each other, you are better able to get through challenges. And as a team, you're more resilient. And so I will use that as passing off the baton to Betsy and her expertise as it pertains to team building and resilience. Well, I would say, you know, it's interesting. One thing that you really talked about there, Sue, is the relational component and really being able to, in that team, do perspective taking and being able to know not only what the role is, but to imagine how that person it might be feeling in a situ- situation. Maybe it's conflict, maybe it's not. And that the work around resilience is really a skill building. It's like a muscle that we can build resilience. Uh, it's a capacity that we can have. And we build it physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually. And we, the literature will tell us that we deplete the most energy, the most resilience in the emotional piece, the interpersonal, the relational piece that we deplete it. And so we, the ways that we build it often, uh, there's whole mindfulness, this meditation, this ability to build that muscle of pausing, of being mindful. Because if I can be more mindful of my own feelings and my own behavior, I then may be more mindful of your behaviors and your skills and what you're going through. I can pause. That pausing opens up empathy. It opens up curiosity. So I can be more curious about you as a team member. That curiosity builds trust. And so it's interesting. IHI has some work that they're doing it's not just about burnout in teams that causes um, conflict and causes issues around patient safety. It's about joy at work. It's about resilience. And if I can build my individual resilience, I'm better off being able to build team resilience. And so there's a lot of connection between resilience, mindfulness, trust, team dynamics. About two years ago, Mass General had. Dan Harris there during Patient Safety Week, and he's the author of 10% Happier, because this was his exact point, that if I can really build my own resilience, my own ability to regulate my emotions, my reactions, then I can enter into a relation, I can pause before I perhaps get into a very conflict situation with my team. Viktor Frankl says there's space between stimulus and response. And that is that pause, that resilience building helps us do. So I said a lot. Did that, did that kind of help make the connection, Sue? Did I, did I pass the ball? I was juggling a little bit there, maybe. <laughs> no. It I was a smooth pass. Very well. <laughs> it was a smooth pass, and it was wonderful, and you ran with it. I have a question. You know, part of Terrence, we and I did a a systematic review on resilience. And one of the things that we found was that there are these individual factors and there's also organizational factors. And so I I, I just, you know, I can talk about this topic forever. I'm wondering, um, and and I think it'd be great for our listeners to, to just spend some time talking about the org, how organizational culture 
influences all of these aspects are, I, I guess, personally, I would, I would see trust and resilience to be attributes of psychological safety. How, how does the organizational culture impact resilience and trust and what can we do to foster resilience and trust? Mm, I'm going to take a stab at that first and see if Betsy can riff off my idea. I think that probably the most important behavior that can support these constructs, Janice, is communication. And when I say communication, I mean not only sending messages out to people, but I think having individual and collective attention to the types of words that we use and the language that we use with each other and making sure that we are intentional about not only how we want to project our message, but that we're spending time using words and language that are perceived by others as being inclusive and as being direct and inviting for other people to be part of that communication so that it's not fostering a one-way passage of information, but it is actively fostering a dialogue in which multiple people within a team or an organization are invited to contribute to the conversation about where we're all going together. That's just my thought. I Definitely agree with what you're saying, Sue, and I would build on that, and I'll, I'll just do that based on, on some of my conversations, you know, during the pandemic and what people were noticing about building trust in a whole way of new, doing leading, right? The cultures were shifting. Maybe you were in a culture that was a shared decision-making, and now you're in a very command control, top-down decision-making when you're in the middle of a pandemic. And so people, we had a lot of conversations about culture and how that can foster resilience and trust. And I completely agree communication and an element of communication, we use the word transparency, but I think what people were telling me was it was more than transparency. It was vulnerability. It was being able to say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have all the answers. I want to, as you said, Sue, invite you into a dialogue and have you help me figure out what's the best scenario, what's the best thing our team needs to do to get through this hump, what are the best things that we need to do with our patients, because people were saying that people didn't have all the answers, and that vulnerability and that honesty, that authenticity to say that, that engendered, engendered, engendered right, yeah, trust. That, that people felt it built more trust by being able to communicate when they didn't have all the answers and show some curiosity and ask not only for help, but how are you doing with this? That's, uh, I think, to your point around culture, that culture of having that authenticity or transparency in the communication. I know you tried out some of these concepts with the webinars that you mentioned, Betsy, little uh, touch points, and you've gotten great response in terms of participation, I wonder when you shared some of these ideas about inclusive language to help build community and trust, and you've mentioned things like joy and resilience and spirituality. What's been the reaction from these very sober health profession scientists uh, when you've shared some of these ideas? 
too, I think we were really excited when we did the one about words and inclusivity and really thinking about how words matter. We had people that called in from all over, you know, as far as Pakistan and really were pausing in saying, wow, I hadn't realized what my words can in and unintentionally say and how that can affect the team dynamics, the team resilience, the team trust. And so our chat room was fired up with a lot of fabulous dialogue as people doing this. So we were really encouraged to see people being able to pause and say, you know, sometimes the soft side of life, what we might call our emotional and social intelligence, is actually the hard part of life. And that we really were seeing people sharing that across their chat. I agree, Betsy. I think not only did people share their reactions, but they were so generous in sharing their own ideas about what has worked for them and for their team. In all honesty, no one has all of the answers for how to move forward at this time because we're all living through something that has never happened to any of us who are alive right now for the most part. And so we need to be able to have trusting relationships with other people with whom we work in order to share a collective culture of looking for best answers for everyone. And you know, we have had so many people join our webinars who are willing to listen, but are also really willing to share their own ideas with other people all over the country. And I think that that underscores the importance of paying attention to these less tangible skills that maybe are just taken for granted, or they, they almost become secondary when people are busy and stressed and worried, and yet these are the behaviors that keep people connected so that they're able to keep going. Yeah, that's a great point to that connectivity because this leading across professions is the third conference that you're offering in this series over the last few years. The connectivity of people from all professions that have been involved in the past coming back into these dialogues through the webinar webinars, I think has con- kept some connectivity so they can share best practice. And at the same time, it's been able to open it up to a lot of other people who hadn't participated in the other learning across professions to be able to be part of this dialogue I mean, in these short snippets of time and share their best practice. So I totally agree with uh, what we've been learning with each other in this connectivity in this absolutely unprecedented time. You, In fact, um, Betsy, your contributions to our conversation have allowed us to expand the idea of trust and the interprofessional aspect of healthcare, education, and delivery, Peter. We have expanded the idea of trust to include the voices of persons who are not healthcare professionals, but have been impacted by healthcare in some way so that we can learn not only from ourselves as educators and clinicians and academics, but we can bring in the voices of people from the community and trainees who are involved in health professions themselves as students and from the voices of people who specialize in ethics for us to think much more broadly about why is trust so instrumental and foundational for us to do our work together. Uh, And so I think that 
having this time to reflect on what we're all going through has allowed us to create a much richer opportunity for this year's conference that I think is globally relevant. It's it's interesting because you know twenty they say twenty twenty this era is exposing ultimate weaknesses and the fact that we're realizing that trust is even more important now just means that it was always important we just it's just being highlighted now and just hasn't been addressed sufficiently and so I love this topic I'm I'm glad we're working on it I think it's it's really um, you know as you both mentioned you know one of the struggles with teaching some of these concepts is that, for example, there's so many courses on how to appropriately apologize to a patient, let's say. And then, you know, what we're coming to find is, well, if you're genuinely sorry, if you're genuinely empathic, you actually don't need to follow all those steps to how to do it. You'll do it naturally. And that is the more difficult part is getting practitioners to get to that you know, deep within and be able to reframe themselves so that they can be able to gain trust, be able to trust, be part of a culture that trusts and gain their own resilience. Yeah, I just think when Janice refers to courses or guidelines or formulas for how to engage in these types of conversations, The problem is that although a guideline and a formula may provide you with a framework, it doesn't necessarily reinforce your relationship with that other person. And so a framework is never going to be as resilient under times of stress as transparent relationship with another person who trusts you. And what this is making me think of is something that that I've been trying to promote lately, which is combining the the literatures on interprofessional collaboration and justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. And even without putting that in front of you, I've been taking notes. I mean, you've used the words of inclusion, of rapport, relationship building, and communication, inviting people in, bringing in stakeholders. All of those things are the principles that we talk about with anti-racism, with anti-oppression. And what's good for teams is, is also good for bringing in people who may not feel included unless they receive that signal saying, hey, you may be the only one who looks like you in this place, but we need you. You have something to add to the team. And so I I see them as reinforcing these, these different concepts, which too often are treated as, well, that's the diversity lane. We're in the patient safety lane now, but really they complement each other so well. Yeah, it's ubiquitous in every aspect of our life. I mean, even with my kids at home and when you go to the grocery store, I mean, authenticity, respect, those types of things, they just seep out of us. You know, you, you know it when you see it. And I think it's building blocks for creating interconnectivity and the uh, trust, trusting relationships that we seek to achieve. Let me ask one more question before we wrap up. Thinking on the more pedagogical or andragogical level, you're both involved in these now online learning spaces. And uh, unlike some healthcare teams, which knew each other before the pandemic and then maybe migrated to some online interactions, many of these learners are not part of a pre-existing team. So what are you doing as educators to build in trust among your learners and create their teamness? Well, I'll start. 
I think that acknowledging right up front that we are learning together in a different environment is really important to set the stage for inquiry that how we're trying to learn together feels so different than anything we've ever done before. We need to create opportunities for people to be actively involved in the learning experience, even though they're physically distant from each other. And I've learned so much from Janice about how to do that. But I think being right up front about you, know, we're in this all together. And it's it's as important as ever that we continue to learn and improve. We've got to do it in a different way. We're trying new things that are respectful of people's interests and the way that they like to learn. And we just need to be creative and upfront about that. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we were fortunate in that we, the group that we just launched was able to meet in person first. And we knew, and that was before the pandemic. So we didn't know once we left the world would change. It was early March, but we knew we were going to have virtual small groups. And so we put them in those small groups with their facilitator to come up with their own rules of engagement, if you will, their own shared contract, their own idea of how, because they had never met each other. They're from all over. How were they going to be in these small groups? And what, what did confidentiality look like? What did sharing stories outside the group look like? What did, you know, so we, they were able to sort of, how are you going to follow up with people? How did you want to run them? So we, we were able to have some of that session. And I think that principle I would carry forward, whether, you know, we had done that already. If, if I wasn't, if I was going to launch something, I would want the group to be able to figure out the norms. Because I think we know in teaming, you're throwing people together. They don't necessarily have that time to go through the typical team of forming, storming, norming, performing. You know, in teaming, you're throwing them in. And so you have to help create the structures that allow people to get up to speed quicker. And by being able to set common purposes and understandings of how they will interact, those types of things can help build it. Additionally, you, we, you know, we just did a lot of getting to know each other, allowing people to share what was going on in their lives, really taking a step back and, and just getting to know each other as human beings, in addition to people in a course together and, and really try to, you know, practice different mindful techniques during our session. So it was multi-pronged approach, but I think some of the principles that Sue mentioned and that we learned from this, when we go forward, we'll try to synthesize those for what could be used in our, our programs going forward. Feedback is great. We're getting great feedback from all the participants on what's working, what's not working. So <laughs> we'll, we'll figure it out. I just want to add quickly on what um, Betsy said about allowing people to get to know each other. And I think in person during uh, continuing education courses, we try to create activities for people to get to know one another outside of the formal curriculum of the course. But these days, since we're virtual, we're basically zooming into someone's home office or maybe their kitchen or maybe their living room. And, you know, one of the kids runs by or the dog barks. And 
you're getting a glimpse into the real aspect of someone's lives while you're learning together. And I think that we should welcome those opportunities when people are willing to share and they shouldn't feel overly embarrassed that, oh, you know, my dog just barked or, you know, there's a car outside. Like we know that you're, that we're learning together and we're in each other's homes in ways that we never would have been if we had been together in a conference center. And that also is a matter of trust and vulnerability that I think that we should embrace and say, we're so grateful that we can all be together virtually and where you are, what you're looking at. We would love to see that too, if you're willing to share it. It's part of who you are and what makes you the healthcare provider or educator or clinician or teacher or person that you are. I'm so glad you said that, Sue, because that is actually my favorite part about Zoom meetings is when the kid walks by, when the cat is, the, the tail is wagging, it's my favorite part. It's just, it's one, it just adds so much flavor to meetings in a good way, warms my heart at least. So the online learning platform reminds me a little bit about this whole phenomena with mask wearing and how many people, when they go out in public, they don't, they're having trouble with the masks because they can't read each other's faces. Yet when I've talked with uh, my clinician friends and colleagues, um, especially those that work in the OR, we talk about smiling with your eyes and how we've learned it over the years that when you're wearing the mask and you're trying to communicate, you actually smile more with your eyes. And it's it's kind of the same thing in online learning. It translates differently, uh, you know, respect for your learners. It translates a little different in that you have to be very, very present. Like they have to feel your presence, meaning immediate replies, you know, giving them clear directions and just allowing them to sense your presence throughout that entire course. And, and so I think you both spoke to that, you know, how that translates into the online environment. And to do it intentionally because you can't rely on the hallway conversations they'll have before class or after yep. class. Yeah. Well, I'm so appreciative because this is so some of my, I'm thinking of some of my takeaways and this conversation is sort of emblematic of the first thing that I flagged, which is when Sue talked about contractual trust versus relational trust. And I realized, although I work with you both before this and now virtually, I mostly interact contractually. I mean, you do this, I do this, we'll come back in two weeks and see. Uh, but this has really given me opportunity to learn more about the ideas behind what you're doing. And I, I really see how that applies to these healthcare teams because it's like our, our students, they can divide and conquer. You take this paragraph, I'll do that paragraph, but they never really learn to collaborate for what the strength of one versus the other is. They're just trying to be time efficient. And what you're talking about is a deeper form of connection that involves getting to know each other beyond their title so you can have that relational strength. But to me, that's one of the primary takeaways. My takeaway is that the most difficult part is reflecting on yourself and trying to find the skills to reframe, especially around these concepts of trust and resilience. And it's not as easy as learning, say, a new clinical skill and being able to practice that and that there are different ways of practicing it and you can learn it online as well. Yeah. And I would say for me, a third tip along with that is I love 
that's the phrase, the soft part is really the hard part, I think is what you're summarizing, Janet, that this, there, there's hope in this message. It is difficult, but it's possible to get better at it when you try. And, and maybe that's the, the blessing of all of this move to online is that we have to be more deliberate. We have to try and we have to build in pauses to allow that space to grow and to build up the muscle of resilience so that teams can be more effective. So it's, it's a difficult message you're getting across, but there's also one of optimism that we can get better at it. And then ultimately our learners, our clients, patients, and the community will benefit too. I definitely agree. I think we are getting better at it. I think these conversations are, are happening. Definitely. Thank you both so much for joining. Sue, did you have one more thing to say? No, I just wanted to thank you again for allowing us to talk about things that we love talking about. (laughs) (laughs) And we can't wait to talk about them with lots of other people later this year. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast, What's Your Delta? MGH Institute's Three Tips for Faculty Development. We hope you come back and listen to our future podcasts with your host, Janice Palaganis, and Peter Kahn of the MGH Institute of Health Professions.